Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. A sheltered young lady from Pasadena set off on the adventure of a lifetime. She traveled halfway around the world to find both the love of her life and her calling in the kitchen, and ended up becoming a cultural icon back here at home. Bon appétit! The end. Let's talk about Julia Child. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1949, President Harry S. Truman labels his administration the Fair Deal. The first TV show to feature a Jewish family premieres on CBS. It's called The Goldbergs. RCA introduces the 45 RPM record. Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman opens on Broadway. The first Polaroid camera is sold. BBC Radio begins broadcasting. Ed Begley Jr., John Belushi, and Richard Gere are born. Victor Fleming and Robert Ripley, of believe it or not, both died. And in 1949, Julia Child enrolled in the prestigious Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. Julia Carolyn McWilliams was born on August 15, 1912, in Pasadena, California. She was the daughter of Julia Carolyn hmm, Weston McWilliams and John McWilliams. Does that surprise you that she's from Pasadena? Because most people associate Julia with New England. I know, Cambridge, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. or Boston, the Boston area. Yes, I agree. Yes, it kind of did surprise me the first time I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Papa was the son of a self-made man, the heir to this empire of land. I mean, farmland, mining land, a little banking thrown in. He was a Princeton man. He was very social. He was extraordinarily conservative in his politics and his religion. Uh, he had the, was it? Fortune, misfortune, don't know, to grow up in the shadow of his hard-working papa, the one that had made all the money. Right. So if there was ever a whip to be cracked over a son's head, this man had to cracked over his head because papa lived a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Now, true. mama, on the other hand, was old money and no doubt about it. She grew up in Massachusetts in a house full of servants, a big family of children, of the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts and his D.A.R. wife. That's right. (laughs) So she had a huge amount of freedom and almost unlimited money, and she graduated from Smith College. She's very, I love her, the descriptions I've read of her. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen Auntie Mame, the Mm -hmm. real one, not the one with Lucille Ball? Yes. The Rosalind Russell one. Yes. That is Carol McWilliams. She was a... Forced. What she wasn't was a really hands-on parent, and that's just not what was done. Right, because she didn't have it done to her. No, so no, why no. would she do that for her children? No. So the two met in Chicago. Now, I did read, no, I saw an interview with her where she said that her parents met at the Chicago World's Fair. We kind of played with the dates on that, and it doesn't quite line up, but what a great story that would be. My parents met at the Chicago World's Fair. Well, and we love the Chicago we World's do. Fair. <laughs> It took eight years of courtship, uh, stalking and fencing is what I have written down, I don't know, (laughs) before she uh, at last agreed to marry him, and they moved with his parents in Pasadena, which has got to be a little overwhelming. Grandpa had gone there on a trip, and he just loved it, so he, he retired to Pasadena. Just from what I've read about Pasadena, it seemed like the Newport mm-hmm. of the West Coast. I mean, oh, it was okay. awash with money. It was awash with fancy houses and fancy cars. Now, it had the advantage of good weather, which Newport never has, and it had the advantage of all the, I mean, the foliage and the lushness. The lushness, and, I know. You know, they had their own society there. Yes. So, ultimately, little Juki, <laughs> her brother called her Juke the Puke, which is so funny. I, I have a Luke, 
and we call him Pukey Lukey sometimes. Our families often. (laughs) Often. (laughs) Um, So little Juki was sent to Mrs. Davis's Montessori school. My son goes to Montessori school. Highly advocate it. Um, Yeah, big liberal. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, maybe that's where Julia got her leanings. Yeah, she has her political leanings are very similar to yours, weren't they? Mm. (laughs) But her teachers were trained by the woman herself, Maria Montessori. Taught these people the Montessori method. My goodness. Can't beat that. They lived in a huge house with all these wraparound porches. Julia had her own bathroom in 1918. Dang. Yeah. Did you see the house? Yeah. Did you look online? Yeah, we'll try and get a picture that's not copyrighted by somebody up on our website of it. It's a very beautiful house. Uh, Five servants in the house. So mom really didn't have to cook a whole lot. The only day she cooked was on the servants to cook's day off, and she would cook. All that Julia later could remember is she cooked Welsh rarebit, which is cheese sauce on toast. It's pretty good, though. It's like cheese fondue. Yeah, it's yeah. It's um, mustard powder in it mm-hmm. and, and white wine, but I don't think Carol put white wine in it. No, probably not. But anyway. if she had Velveeta, she probably would have used that, but I, don't, I think this all predates Velveeta. Well, and like cod balls with white sauce yeah, or something. Like, it was not fancy. No. And then these biscuits were pretty good. Yeah. You can't live on biscuits, cod balls, and cheese sauce. Or maybe you can. One day a week. Well, dinner when the servants were in residence was large quantities of simple food. Uh And as was custom in houses at the time, the children were not to be seen or heard at that table until they were a respectable age. So most of the time they ate their meals in the kitchen Uh with the servants until they were old enough. Julia does not remember anybody talking about food, messing with food. Mama certainly didn't cook except those few things. Uh She never taught her daughters to cook. Uh Uh, but they remembered, because they all grew up to be very tall, eating like wolves at the table. Right. It was probably a necessity thing. It's like, okay, food, and then go yeah. out to play. Because she was very active. Sporty, you know. Yeah, she like, had a baby gang. Has to be called a baby gang. <laughs> called the Delta Club. They had this freedom to roam their neighborhood on their bicycles. And, you know, they would do nice things. Like, they'd go fishing. They'd go exploring. They saw the Rose Bowl being built. That's awesome. That was good. Um, they also had some strategies for stealing their dad's cigars and cigarettes. And they'd climb up in this tree, and there'd be this l- lot of them up there smoking. <laughs> They're, like, seven years old. And so can you see this tree if you look out the window, this blue smoke lifting Coming off the, the tree? tree. <laughs> That's got to be. There was a local mean lady, and they literally... Sneaked in her house, took down the chandelier off the ceiling, took all the crystals off, and buried them in someone's garden, and left the frame on the ground and snuck back out. That's hysterical. <laughs> they hung out with hobos at the railroad tracks. Love it. Nice. Um, Julia once got stuck in a chimney that she was trying to climb down, and in order to get her out, the rest of the baby gang had to dismantle the chimney. And they did. And they did. <laughs> Okay, so there's your tomboy, there's your freedom to act as one soffit. So speeding through the rest of her education real quick, seriously private schools, you know, Mm -hmm. she ended up in about ninth grade going to boarding school for girls. That's what was done in their family. She was sporty but not coordinated. She's famous for walking on and tripping on nothing. Well, she had rather large feet. I think she's size 12, 13. Something like that. It's They were fairly large. Well, she was outgoing, and people just loved her. You know, some people just have the charm. They do. They people do. were just drawn to her her whole life. That was that was her thing. That's what she had. It was just in her. She it's, always had to play the man in plays, though, which she was like, really? I'm the man again. 
Okay. Or the tree. She was the man <laughs> on the tree. Um, she was a medium student. At this school, they taught no housewifely things, no practical things. These ladies weren't expected to have to do any of this. They learned math, Latin, English, a tiny bit of history, and French, which she ironically sucked at. Well, that's because they taught by rote. They yeah. didn't, they t- you know, let's conjugate these verbs. Well, how, that is not going to help you when you need to find a bathroom in Paris. That's true. Mother enriched her daughters with art, music, theater. They had, you know, they had those lessons on the side as well. Well, on to Smith College, Mama's alma mater since birth, it was known that this child would go to Smith College. No options. No. No. But this college was designed to give young women the same education that their brothers were receiving Mm -hmm. at the the Ivy League colleges. So it was a very academic school. Um, But she was not exactly an academic. She never called herself an intellectual. As a matter of fact, she said that she was far from it. When women enroll at Smith, they are asked about their goals. What are you know what? What are you planning? Julia wrote, "No occupation decided, marriage preferable," and then just simply filed it. That was a very common thing right. to have. Go get your MRS degree. Yes. Actually, my mother dropped out of college because the college said, "Well, you're just here until you get married." Uh, uh, not the same time. A few years later. Well, she is definitely in the land of the gentleman's yeah. sea. It was a gentleman's, be yeah. honest, what she had. And her father thought that was great because he thought intellectualism equaled communism. So uh-huh. if anyone was going to get straight A's, that was going to be very concerning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that funny how parents are so different? So with these lofty goals in mind, you know, as women did, not in dorm rooms that we think of. Have you seen that movie with Julia Roberts? Oh, um, yes. Uh, Mona Lisa Smile. smile yes. That lovely suite of mm-hmm. rooms. Mm-hmm. Man, that's a dorm room? Mm-hmm. I can live with that. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. So I love that. And you can entertain your friends there. She was very popular. Yes. Very popular. She called it her leisurely butterfly life. That's what she lived. You know, I will tell you, her senior year, she brought those grades up ASAP because you could have a car on campus. Uh-huh. If you had X number of grades and you were a senior. And so her dad bought her a 1929 Ford convertible that she named Eulalie. Eulalie. Do you name your car? I have not since I've gotten married. I drive a minivan. You don't want to name it because <laughs> you're just going to abuse it. <laughs> wow, we need suggestions for to name Susan's minivan. It's what color? It's maroon. Maroon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I have a car uh, who I've decided is a boy, and his name is Ludwig because car, he is German. Your car does look like a Ludwig. You have a way cooler car than I do, <laughs> which is not a surprise. <laughs> so Julia took her car off to the speakeasies. Of course she did, and she was quoted as saying, luckily we had an open car. We were all sick all the way home. And it was marvelous. It was marvelous. We got... Well, that's the year Prohibition was repealed, and Julia recalls partying for four and five days at a time. Wow. Man, that's some stamina. Well, graduation came at last. (laughs) Finally, um, Julia graduated with a major in history, although it was very confusing. For a long time, people thought she majored in English. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not much direction, really. Julia said, middle-class women did not have careers. You were to marry and have children and be a nice mother. You didn't go out and do anything. In fact, the president of Smith told her graduating class, in a congratulatory tone of voice, you're not the brightest class to graduate from Smith, but you are the marryingest. <laughs> wow. Okay. That would so not fly now. No, not, uh, can you just see the parents, like, gripping their chairs? 
<laughs> so she had very little experience with boys and then, you know, men. That made the marriage track not so probable. No, she not at all. So, so where did she head? New York City. Well, you're already on the East Coast, but that's the best spot. She had this lofty romance. She was a very romanticized way of looking at life, and she was going to be a novelist. She didn't really write anything. <laughs> you got to have a goal. You got to have a dream. And she did. So she moved in with two women and got eventually got a job as writing ad copy for a furniture store and making like eighteen dollars a week or something. And she said she was a she was a Republican until she lived on eighteen dollars a week and then she became a Democrat. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That is Her rent funny. was only eighty dollars a month. Did we just lose all the New Yorkers? I know. Eighty dollars. <laughs> well, it's like thirteen hundred and fifty dollars a month, but among three girls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she was living the dream. She would go eat at Schraff's, and she'd go eat at Child's, ironically, which I'm guessing is like Applebee's and IHOP. We're not eating at the fanciest of places. No. But she loved it. It was freedom. Yeah. She could live on her own. And she's not a foodie yet. So she just needs to energize her body, put as many carbs and proteins as she can get in, and go out and do her thing. <laughs> she had her first serious boyfriend. That was good. She yeah. was 24. Uh, his name was Tom Johnston, and for six months, they were an item, or so she thought. Turns out he'd been dating someone that she knew simultaneously oh. all along and ended up marrying her. What the heck? So you know your freshman breakup in high school, the one that feels like the end of the world? Mm-hmm. Well, she had it really late, like 10 years later yeah. than the rest of us had it. Yeah. And it was kind of devastating. Yeah. Well, I mean, she had no experience with no. Jerkitude. And that was highly <laughs> regarded jerkitude right there. Good deal. So she kind of gave up on NYC and fled home to Pasadena, where no one had bothered to tell her how ill her mother was. Mm-mm. This whole time they were keeping it from her. Yeah, her mother had high blood pressure, which, I mean, we think now, okay, we'll take, you know, take a statin to cut down on your stuff in your arteries and take this and take that, but they didn't have that back then. Mama died two months after she got home. Mm-hmm. I'm glad she got home in time. I do too, yeah. So Papa wanted her to stay home and be the daughter of the house. Though NYC Advertising World wanted her back, she stayed. She stayed. She was dutiful. I think I think she buried some dreams, honestly, right about now. Yeah, I don't know that she really had any. Well, the novelist thing was yeah. dead. and she Although, kinda... quite honestly, if you were going to be a novelist, living at home with your dad in that house... With servants, it would be a good time to sit down and do some writing. But, but she didn't. She wanted no, she to didn't. play golf, play piano, mm-hmm. and and simmer, is she, what she called she it. She did a little bit of writing. She wrote for some local publications. and She wrote fashion articles, was, yeah. which is ironic because she always complained her whole life that she can't get anything in her size. Mm-mm. When she found a pair of shoes her size, oh, did she take care of them because it was not going to come around again. Right. Yeah. She'd look in the mirror well, I look as good as I'll get, kind of. <laughs> this is it. I look pretty good, you know, for me. So she was a fashion writer. That's funny. So five years after Mama's death, she is just, I think, in a deep depression. She was kind of bored. She was not fulfilled. She wasn't doing anything. No. She was just circling. When she's nearing 30, I mean, that's a that's a milestone time for anyone. Mm-hmm. And now she's going, okay, now what's my life? I'm a spinster. I'm living at home with my dad. What am I going to do? So she took herself in hand, kind of, and shook herself, like, look, this is ridiculous. i got to get my crap together. And she took another job in PR and advertising where she could still live at home, and she began to even kind of relish her singleness. Here's a quote from her. Thank heaven I'm getting over that fear and contempt of single maidenhood, or should I say maidenhead? Guess not. Ha ha. <laughs> 
Uh, I'm quite content to be the way I am. I feel quite superior to many a wedded mouse. By God, I can do what I want. So she was kind of starting to be like, you know, all my friends are having babies. I don't see them anymore. Right. Their husbands tell them they can't do this or can't do that, and I can do whatever I want. At 30, in fact, along with this sentiment, she rejected a proposal from Harrison Chandler, suitable, rich, from Pasadena, Republican, Papa should have married him, frankly, because Papa was very disappointed when she said no. He wanted her to marry a Pasadena man and settle down, have little Pasadena babies, and join the Junior League Mm -hmm. and the Young Matrons and just be who he wanted her to be. Mm -hmm. So then, Pearl Harbor happened in 1941, the day that we'll live in infamy, and the whole country mobilized for war. She applied for the wax. Too tall. She applied for the waves. Too tall. She was six foot two. They couldn't just make her an outfit. You think. Maybe just like add a little bit to the hem. She'll be fine. But ultimately, she found a better career, I think, with the Office of Strategic Services, OSS. OSS. It's the precursor to the CIA. What? I know. Julia Chow was a spy? Well, no, not exactly. I mean, as far as you know. (laughs) She was a spy clerk. But you know what? She was more than a clerk, although that's what her title was. Um, In fact, she worked in this unit that was encouraged to be creative and, in fact, was kind of harebrained. It was made up of these wealthy people who were kind of considered unbribable. Because, like, what do they need the money, you know, for? Right. They would do these cuckoo kachoo things, like, these guys were trying to develop shark repellent to put Mm -hmm. around bombs so they wouldn't get set off, or... Survival mirrors, so that you could have it in your on your person in case you landed somewhere to attract the attention of an aircraft. Can you survive by drinking fish juice? And so they had to go buy all these fishes and squeeze all the... juice out of their eyeballs and squeeze all the juice out of the thing and then they would hold up these these glasses you first no you first they're all covered with fish scales and i am seriously working here it was funny but she loved it it was different it was exciting it was adventurous and it got her out of the u.s she got on a secret mission, whatever. It was a secret mission because they didn't know exactly what they were going to be doing. But it's wartime. I mean, you can't tell anybody what's going on. So with 12 other women in her group, they set off on an ocean voyage for India. With 3,000 men on the troop ship. And Julia's like, let's tell them we're missionaries. This is going to be complicated. No one ever believed it. Julia and um, the ladies were supposed to go to India, and ultimately they ended up in Ceylon, which they now call Sri Lanka. Well, there's monkeys everywhere. If you needed something pulled, you got an elephant to do it. Mm-hmm. I, it's going to be exotic. more exotic. I mean, than- this is the adventure she's looking for. The day after their boat docked, the dock blew up. <laughs> How exciting. I don't think we're in Pasadena anymore. No. Well, Julia, since she had this great education, had the highest security clearance possible, and she was the head registrar, and she actually processed secret agents' reports. She was authorized to look at them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she's not exactly out there in the field being a spy, but she knows what the spies have done. Right. And who's being bribed with pellets of opium, in fact. And Mm -hmm. she knows everything. Right. She keeps all to herself. That's cool. Well, Julia, predictably, was a hit. She was funny, she was intelligent and jokey, invariably thought well of. 
She was so grumpy about her work, though. She was kind of mad at herself for what she called it, wasting her potential and being a file clerk. But that's a pretty, like... She's a file clerk in India during war, working for a secret agency. Yeah, I can see her point-ish, but... She wanted to get out there and talk to the locals, and Mm -hmm. she loved the exotic food, although... You would go out and get what they called Delhi Belly, or what we now call Montezuma's Revenge, <laughs> or the Trotskys, yeah. or whatever. Um, now, Pepto-Bismol was invented in 1901. I looked, so it was available. <laughs> yes, but they good. probably had to drink it, like yeah. shots of it. Right. And somebody brought this crazy, weird fruit back and opened it up, and it smelled like dead babies covered in strawberries and camembert. And guess what it was? Durian fruit. They had their first experience of the stinkiest fruit that is banned from hotels all <laughs> over Asia. I'm, I don't even know what that is. It's it's this fruit that anytime you see somebody on the Food Network eat it, they gag, they gag, they gag. It's Yum. bad. So they had that. That was her pretty much first mention of exotic food. food. <laughs> now, how many people meet their future husbands at work? I did. Oh, there you go. Well, I looked it up, and it's 19% in America. Really? Right now. I thought it would be higher. I would, um, too. Obviously, it would be a lot lower then. Right, because there wasn't because as there many weren't... women in the workplace. And the women that were there, a lot of times, marriage wasn't their objective. Right. right. Um, so she had very few dates, which the odds were so good. There's so many men and so few women, but she just didn't have very many dates. She was charming in in the global sense, but maybe wasn't as good on one-on-one with the men. Mm-mm. A man named Paul Child, he was an artist who created maps for the Pacific Theater, was described as follows. When I first saw him, I thought him not at all nice looking. White hair, an unbecoming long mustache, and an unbecoming long nose. Okay. And then He's he, not going to keep the hair for very long, honey, so don't worry don't about, about it. it. <laughs> he thought, this is his first impression of her, she has a slight air of hysteria, and it gets on my nerves. She's trying to be brave about being an old maid. Whatever. (laughs) That was his first impression. Luckily, first impressions don't mean everything. (laughs) It's time for us to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll talk about romance. are back. Julia has met Paul Child, and it's not exactly the romantic introduction that we would have expected or maybe wanted. I don't know. But they found each other great company, and they were in the midst of this gang of friends. They thought that each other were witty, and they just were funny together. But he wrote to his brother, I believe she would marry me, but she she isn't the right woman from my standpoint at all. Well, he was 10 years older than her, so he was more worldly because of that. He'd grown up different than her. Paul was a twin, his brother Charles, and he were six months old when their father died, leaving the mother a widow. And she moved the family to Boston to support herself and her children. She was not the type of childhood that Julia had at all. 
No, they uh, had a little act. Mrs. Child and her children, and the two little sons, one played the violin and one played the cello, and and they were teeny tiny little moppet curly tops. Super cute. Awesome. Super cute. And they took judo lessons. As a matter of fact, they were coming back one time from lessons, I believe, with their instrument cases, and a thug tried to rob them. And the boys went all judo. They did their judo on this guy with their instrument cases and their judo moves. Took them down and went home. You know, they were kind of torn and stuff. But that's the kind of kids they were. So anyway, he joined the Canadian Army at 16. He worked on armaments. Um, He, okay, this is weird, made and installed stained glass in churches. Yeah. And he was so, he would force himself, he was afraid of heights, and he would force himself to do the topmost windows. And everyone started calling him Tarzan. (laughs) He's not. He doesn't look very macho, but no. man, that man has a black belt in some say judo, some say jujitsu. Oh, yeah. I don't pretend to know the difference. Some type of martial art. Yes. Um, he did live the bohemian life in Paris. He taught private school in Connecticut, and then he ended up in the diplomatic service, but he was in the basically the propaganda department. His forte was the visual arts. He had, I guess what then you'd call a mistress, now you'd just say a girlfriend, for 17 years. And then she died. Right before he met Julia, this girlfriend died of cancer, and it really devastated him. It might account for his moodiness. He was a pretty buttoned-up and sour dude, I'll tell you. By his own account. I'm not sure. Telling anything. Sure. Well, if you've been through that, I think I would be buttoned-up and sour, too. Yeah. And, and seeing Julia, who's very effervescent, but naive in relationships, you were just in two totally different places. Mm-hmm. But he ultimately did credit Julia for bringing him back to life. I have to say, at the beginning, I don't like Paul very much. That's okay. Neither um, did she. No, I'm just kidding. They liked well, each other. Yeah. They did. I take that back. They do. They liked each other a great deal, but they weren't. It wasn't romantic for him. Well, you know, and she liked him, and she didn't have a bit of guile in her. It's probably blatantly obvious to him that she really fancies him mm-hmm. or whatever, and he... He didn't mock her to her face, but he would write these detailed letters to his twin brother, Charlie, and he mocked her lack of experience with men, and, like, it's Charlie's beeswax, no, whatever. That well, that's a twin me. thing. I know. I'm sorry. Whatever. But he he seemed kind of egocentric to me. He would say, she's limited in relation to my concept of an ideal woman, and he would also say, she really needs some experience in bed, but... Professor Polsky's not going to take that job on or whatever. I spit on you, previous Paul. I spit on you. But he changed. He did. Julia liked him. He honestly did enjoy her company. And when they got transferred to China, they were together a lot. Together a lot. And so it begins. (laughs) Professor Polsky perhaps opened a school. Maybe he did. Maybe he did. But they were... They also ate together a lot, and they explored the country. The people they were with were not necessarily as adventurous, wanting to know the area, as these two were. And they would go and try different foods and local cuisines, and they wanted to learn about the culture and the foods of the area, where the rest of their people were like, oh, no, where's the American commissary? Yeah, that's where I'm going to eat, you know, and they're going out to a hut somewhere. This experience in China was, Julia credited that with giving her her first little frisson of interest in food. Mm -hmm. She would compare the different regions and the different cultures, and she ended up loving the culture and um, the food of Peking. She said it was simple, the rules to it. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Sounds Mm -hmm. like her later experience in French cooking. Oh, yeah, definitely. So this relationship went on. What the heck were they? You know, Julia had no idea. They shared a bed. But he referred to her as a dear friend. Oh. Hmm. Confusing for her. I mean, she said, what? Two boyfriends. 
Yeah, Yeah. she doesn't know. Paul had had his um, fortune read, and the astrologer told him that soon an intelligent, romantic, beautiful woman would bring some complication to his life and their relationship. And Paul's response was, I wish she would come. I'm very lonely. Dude. Hello. Dude. You have six foot two worth of company standing right next to you. I know. And later, he actually did write in the margins of that letter, Julia, you're an idiot! (laughs) So he knew later, as he was rereading, like, but the war ended, and homeward bound, they met each other's families, their letters got steamy. They did, and they actually traveled together. They First they went to California, and he said he wasn't ever going to marry any, a woman he hadn't seen in her civvies. So, you know, they had to, like, live the American life for a little bit. <laughs> that doesn't make him look better I know me. it doesn't. Whatever. Okay, here's the only quote I can pull out of any of those letters. Okay, <laughs> yeah, go for it. Come on back and sit in my lap and let me bite your earrings off again. Woo! And that's the calmest thing that goes on in these pages yeah. that are on file. <laughs> so she decided to go to cooking school in Beverly Hills to try to, you know, impress him. Good food and good cooking were important. And she, here's some highlights of her experience there. Brains in red wine. That was the first thing he she cooked for him. I'm sorry. I think that's really funny. Which she stirred. Like the Dickens, and I can just imagine it ended up looking like gray, white knobs of big, fat cottage cheese swimming in blood or something. It was not good. She goes, oh, that wasn't good. No. You're not supposed to womp it with a spoon. Even I know that, and I don't even, I would not cook brains if I was on Survivor. No way. And then she didn't have any butter, so she substituted lard and ended up with hard lard goop, is what she called it. Instead of a soft. So L.A. cooking school is not really doing her any favors. So he married her in spite of her cooking. He really not for it. He totally did. He said, I'm willing to overlook her cooking to have Julia. How sweet is that? So they're married at last. Yay! The only bad thing is their wedding photos are not so awesome because the night before the wedding, they got in a really bad car accident. So the groom had a cane, and the bride had a big old fat white ropey bandage on her head instead of a veil. Okay, so Julia and Paul set up house in Washington, D.C. Remember how we talked about in Real Housewives of the 1950s about the two food themes kind of running through this time period? You've got, on one hand, Joy of Cooking, and then on the other hand was the delightfully named The Can Opener Cookbook. (laughs) I learned how to cook on Joy of Cooking. What would you have learned how to cook on? Or I would have done like my grandma d- did and join a club and eat dinner there every night. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, my grandma could make a mean Gibson. Oh, yes. And then she could make rumaki, which no one eats anymore. It's like livers Liver wrapped in bacon. bacon. That was her favorite with a dinner. Skewer. Yeah. Oh, one must have with a frill on the top. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> So Julia chose Joy of Cooking, luckily, for the world. <laughs> yeah. And her copies are still alive. By the Isn't way. that awesome? Yeah, we'll talk about that later, but that's really cool. So all, she was not a natural cook, which is ironic, and she fumed at what she saw the lack of directions. Now, you and me would say, okay, add this to the thing and stir, but she mm-hmm. wanted scientific directions. Why mm-hmm. am I doing this? Nobody had that book. Even Joy of Cooking, which is very detailed, yeah. and there's illustrations, it's still, there's gaps. Yes, I agree. <laughs> and so... Okay, so Julia and Paul set up house in Washington, D.C., where they had a house fire, two burglaries, and a lost job right away. (gasps) Take a deep breath, girl. Okay, do over. (laughs) That was not a good start. Do over, do over. Uh, Papa bought them a Buick that they named Blue Flash, and the U.S. government sent them a prize. 
in the form of a new opportunity. Paul was being transferred to Paris. Paris! And so began Julia's big adventure. He did. She had never been to Europe before. So this was very exciting for her. And Paul knew France. He knew Paris. He loved Paris. He spoke beautiful French. Julia, however, was still speaking la stylo de maton et sur la table, which will get you nowhere other than a pen. And her accent sounded like merci, monsieur. Like a caricature of an American speaking uh-huh, French. Uh-huh. Julia never forgot the first meal she had in France. Oysters Portuguese. Uh, I can't say the name of the champagne. Solmenier, green salad, creme fraiche, and coffee. She carries on about this meal for the rest of her life. Because it changed her life. That she never knew food could taste like this. It was, pardon my French, an orgasmic experience for her to eat that dinner. Well, and she also talks about she saw wine coming to another table. She's like, wine? With lunch? Oh, how far she came after that. But she said that the whole experience was an opening up of the soul and spirit for me. I was hooked and for life, as it turned out. She just loved France. She was so worried. They pulled up to this restaurant. She didn't have fancy clothes on. She couldn't speak the language. She was worried she's going to be snubbed. She called herself a hungry hayseed from California. (laughs) And unsophisticated. Now, had she not just lived all over Asia, though, that's the thing. It's like, why are we discounting this? Like... Who do you know that's lived all over Asia? I know. So I agree. Although I can see the diff, like the culture of Asia, it looks so foreign and rustic. Mm. Whereas the culture of France walking into this particular restaurant, which is one of the oldest in the country, it, it's very refined. So right. I can see where she would feel that had nothing to do with this, with living in, in France. And, Well, she said, I didn't get started on life until I was almost 32, which was good, because I was old enough to appreciate it. See, she always put a positive spin on things. That's a theme that just kept hitting me, is that she she was older a lot of times. We're going to point out the ages when she gets the things. But I think that's really, really important, because... You know, a lot of people think all this exciting stuff is going to happen to them early and then they're going to settle down. But she really, she hit 30 and that's when her life really started. So I think that's very exciting. She loved everything about France. And if this were a movie, this is where I would put in a montage. I would too. With a little doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo. Julia talking to the butcher. Julia talking to the florist. (laughs) Julia talking to the cheesemaker. And all of them loving her. Standing on a bridge. (laughs) Watching the birds. Yeah, her and Paul snuggled up at a table having coffee and just tearing apart a piece of pastry. Well, she loved everything about France. Her apartment at 81 Rue de l'Université, which they called Rue de Lou because they were just, nah, we're not saying that. It's cute though, Rue de Lou. Lou. I love, they're the kind of couple that names stuff. Yeah, the car cute. was named Blue Flash. Flash. It's cute. Well, it was the food, honestly, that just knocked her out. She said this was before the nutrition police got in everywhere. <laughs> it was the old French kind, full of butter and cream. <laughs> Julia had found her passion, and she decided to enroll in the Cordon Bleu cooking school. It wasn't the first thing that she tried. She did try hat making, <laughs> which really wasn't suited for her. I like hats. But And the world of hats is poorer for it. I know. <laughs> Julia didn't take that up. For all of her creative... But she's really a... Sci- I think she thought of herself as romantic, but she was really a sciencey thinker. Yeah. 
So hat making, that's a creative art. She liked the numbers. She liked Mm -hmm. the exactitude of cooking. Yes. If you put this, 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 and this, it will do this. So the Cordon Bleu had been a cooking school since 1895. This is your elite brand of diploma here. If you could say you were, and they called the graduates themselves Cordon Bleu, if you were a Cordon Bleu, you had some entree. So she decided that's the place she's going to go. Unfortunately, they put her in a homemaker's class. This is where you learn to boil an egg. This is where you learn to do the basic cooking, which she, at this point, was kind of, she knew how to do basic stuff, but she wanted to learn how to cook like the French. She didn't want to know how to boil an egg like the French. She wanted to learn how to make a souffle like the French. Right. So they finally agreed to take her off the morning classes of housewives, and they put her in with 11 men. GIs who were in a professional class that they're going to be learning to cook for a restaurant for professional use. And so she's in that class. She's happy. This is what she She wanted. So Chef Max Bunyard taught this class, and he was very thorough and very good teacher. She really admired him. Mm -hmm. She started to get obsessed, kind of, like... They would do class in the morning, and then they would take a long lunch break. Julia often used lunch to go home and have party time with Paul. That's we right. We talk about that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, she's, we'd, we'd have lunch and then take a nap. Uh-huh. Yes, they would take a nap. So she took a lot of naps. And then in the afternoon, there were demo classes, basically a theater. You would sit there, and they would make, you know, think about Food Network. Right. You know, it would be like if you were sitting in Emerald's Enclave watching him prepare a thing. That's right. what would happen in the right. afternoon. And then... Like as not, she'd leave there, go buy the ingredients, go home, and try to recreate what she had just seen in the demonstration. Which is fine use of her tuition dollars, way more so than what she did at Smith. That's exactly right. <laughs> Paul was kind of amused, though. He wrote his brother, If you could see Julie stuffing pepper and lard up the a-hole of a dead pigeon, you'd realize how profoundly affected she's been by the cordon bleu. <laughs> and I have to say, there is a point in the movie, Julie I was and Julia, saying, I know exactly what you, yeah. She got talked to about her onion chopping not being up to standard. And so, by God, she got a bag of onions, and she went up there, and she choppity, choppity, chopped. And Paul came home from work, da-da-da, opened the door, and his face, <laughs> the sulfur knocked him back down the stairs. What the hell is going on in here? Yeah, I wonder what she did with all those onions. At first, I was, I'm like, oh, she can make onion soup, but that's a lot of onion soup. She didn't have modern refrigeration. She just had a little icebox in her ill-equipped kitchen. Oof. So, I think she probably ended up tossing the onions? I don't know. I don't know. But the teacher took her to the famous Les Al market and introduced her personally to his favorite vendors. That is a very big deal. Yeah, her teacher, she was teacher's pet. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, he took, he would do private lessons with her. And not, it wasn't about the money. I think he really admired her drive. I mean, she's still learning the language at this point. He created a monster when he took her to the DeHilleran restaurant equipment store and her wallet <laughs> leaked out money for years on gadgets and pots and pans and specialty equipment. It drew her in like magnet. Yeah, and she was always, whenever they would travel around France, and, and so she's always looking for kitchen gadgets. And she bought, there's this mortar and pestle story that she sees at a flea market or something, and she has to have it. She makes poor Paul lug this big stone. It's huge, and it's in the Smithsonian, right? now so you can see it but you know he had to bring it to the blue flash and drive it home it wrecked his upholstery 
So yeah, or well, something. It was rough stone. Yeah. It wasn't your little cute little thing you think of at the pharmacy, you know? It was this big monster. They didn't have food processors at the Cordon Bleu. Mm-hmm. They did everything the old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. And so honestly, if you wanted to make um, puree of fish or something, right. for a, you had to sit there with this mortal and pestle and a fish and beat the poo out of it mm-hmm. for like half an hour. Her arms must have been so strong because she's like wielding these huge balloon whisks every... Have you ever tried to beat an egg to soft peak an egg white with your arm who is she asking i'm asking you (laughs) have i ever beaten an egg other than what it takes to put in a scrambled type egg that would be a no but i can appreciate what you're saying (laughs) and i wonder if her size had something to do with the fact that she could be there with the men with that mortar pestle Mm -hmm. and the, the heavy pans and oh yeah good point i don't know i just was thinking about that she wasn't suited size-wise to her kitchen at home. There's a very famous picture of her at her stove in Paris, and she's got her hand on her hip and her apron on and her pumps. All of, she's always been wearing these pumps because that was what they did. And she's cooking, and the stove is, like, just above her knees. It's way down there. It's like you or I with the Fisher-Price kitchen set. So after all this work and obsession, she actually failed her first final exam. She did. Poor thing. I, she, the reason she failed is she was thinking big. She was thinking about all the fancy, unique French dishes that she'd learned. She wasn't thinking about the basic ones that they had in their, in their cookbook that they gave to all their students. And that's what they asked her to make. I think she just blanked. It's like the brain cell that had that in it just didn't fire up and she was so mad at herself. Her second attempt went much better and she had a diploma from the Cordon Bleu. Yay! Yes, at last. She joined, on the basis of that diploma, uh, a women's gastronomy club called the Circle de Gourmet. It's like a book club, but for food. You'd go to different places and have everyone make you a meal. During these meetings came one of the most important introductions of Julia's life. She met Simone Beck-Fischbacher, known to all as Simca, a tall, blonde French woman. And she and her friend, Louisette Bertol, had been working on a book together to introduce French cuisine to Americans. And the three ladies became great friends. They started a cooking school called the Three Gourmand, which means the Three Big Eaters. Now, if you see pictures of Julia Child, she's got a badge on, a lot of times on her blouse and with a big three in the middle of it, and that's what it was. It was Les Trois Gourmands. They taught basic knife technique, which was very important to Julia, and she always thought that her friend Simka did not have proper knife technique. And would always, I'm like, dude, back off, poor old Simka. <laughs> Not everyone is as obsessed as you, but whatever. Their students were mostly Americans, drawn from embassy wives Mm -hmm. or friends of Louisette's. Louisette knew everybody. Yeah. Uh, Simca and Julia were the scientific ones, and they tested and wrote out class lessons and laid out the courses, and Louisette was the color, the idea girl. She wasn't so into the grunt work. She was kind of like in Ghostbusters. The Bill Murray? The Bill Murray. Oh, good one. (laughs) You know, yes, cuter. Yes. I mean, she was the the face who, you know, didn't really put in as much effort. Necessary. Yeah. Because the other two weren't going to, that's not, that wasn't their thing. Well, as a matter of fact, one day, Louisette brought by an old friend, Irma Rombauer, who wrote The Joy of Cooking. How cool is that? Now, Irma Rombauer is an American. Yep. And she, I think this was depicted pretty good in the Julia and Julia movie. The meeting of the three of them with her. It was oh, just yeah. kind of the conversation. I thought that was, that was probably pretty accurate. Well, Louisette and Simca got a bit of a blow. Their big old 600-page fat manuscript called French Cooking for All 
all was in the hands of a publisher, and he had assigned an American named, awesomely, Helmut Ripperger. Maybe my next car will be named Helmut. I was just going to say, are you going to, was that one of your names that you tossed out? No, I had Wolfgang and Ludwig. Oh. It was a very short list. I do Ludwig. Yeah, good call. Anyway, (laughs) Helmut, not the car, the man, upped and quit. Just one day, he was gone. Ah! Because the publisher, Ives Washburn, would not move forward without an American advisor. Well, okay, how far did you have to look around? Louisa and Sim could have found an American who was interested in food. In French food, who was really immersed in the French culture. Who should we ask? Who? Now, unlike Paul, who looked around and didn't see her and said, I wish she'd come, yeah. Louisa and Simka had eyeballs, and they right. saw her right there, yeah. perfect for the job. Right. And they asked her to be their collaborator. And she didn't hesitate that one second. Well, so now I think it's time to take a little break. When we come back, we'll talk about how the book and all her media empire played out. Audible.com is offering History Chicks listeners a free audiobook download to give you a chance to try out their service. To go along with this episode, we recommend My Life in France, the unabridged version, by Julia Child and her great-nephew, Alex Prudhomme. It will tell you the story of Julia Child's life in Europe from her perspective and give you all kinds of inside information. To receive your free audiobook download today, simply follow the Audible link on our website, thehistorychicks.com. And we are back. Julia has just accepted to work as a collaborator with Simca and Louisette on the book. And I have to tell you, she's 40. She's 40 years old at this point. It's in the early 50s. And I've said it before. I'll say it again. Life at 40 is not what you people at 30 think it's going to be. 40 rocks. And Julia exemplified that rockitude. So Julia accepted this collaboration gleefully, and then set to ripping all of it apart. She said, this is just a big collection of recipes, not one of which will stand as written. Ouch! I know, you have a heart for all the work that they'd already put into it. But she was taken on to do just that, to say, "Is as an American, I can tell you if this is going to work or not, and it's not going to work. This is what you need to do. As the person that you trust to give you honest feedback, This is what needs to happen. Well, except for she didn't necessarily give them feedback. She rewrote it. She retested it. She even changed the order of the chapters because she thought if you started with sauces, that's too Frenchy. Mm -hmm. Let's start with something else. Right. But anyway, so is she an American? Right. Well, I don't know. I think she was right. Is that her place? I guess is my point there. She made it her place. She took on the responsibility. Did and she dove in the way she dove into everything at this point in her life. Two big size 12 feet first, you know? And she's diving in. She's putting like 40 hours a week. But who asked her to? Nobody asked her to. But are they appreciative? Yes, because they want their book to sell in America. They got caught up in it. Well, so I guess I find it in my heart to feel very, very sorry for Simka and Louisette for getting caught up in this situation in which their work got taken apart so thoroughly. Susan sees the outcome as good. Right. And it is. But my point is she probably ought to have written her own cookbook, cookbook. which she ended up doing instead of pushing these ladies out of their project. Right. I can see your point. But anyway. Anyway. About this time, (laughs) 
Julia read an article by an American food writer named Bernard DeVoto who complained about the low quality of stainless steel knives in America because they won't hold an edge, he said. And Julia loved this man's writing and she... You know how sometimes you see things online and you know you can make a contribution? You're like, oh, you can't wait to just type it in. Like, right. oh, I know, I know, maybe. Right. Okay, there's no internet. So she hurriedly went down to her local restaurant supply and got a couple good knives mm-hmm. and mailed them off to the man. And his wife answered. Avis Devoto answered. And a 40-year friendship was born. That is in a book. We'll talk about all the books later. But there are letters in regard to... The publishing of this particular, Mastering Their Own French Cooking, and you can read them all. And it's really kind of fun. It's fun to watch their friendship develop and start with, you know, Mrs. Devoto and Mrs. Child, and then they start talking just like, you know, people do, just like we do, you know, about kids and, or not, lack of kids, and that's something that we do need to discuss. Julian and Paul never had children. Julia had quite a bit of time on her hands (laughs) to devote to this type of project. Well, Avis DeVoto was an integral part of testing the recipes for this new cookbook. She trusted Avis DeVoto. She trusted her sister Dorothy, who everyone called Dort, unfortunately. Another big big in stature, but also big in personality. Yeah. She's played by Jane Lynch in the Julie and Julia movie, which I thought was fabulous. I, I adore her so much. So. The before Glee Jane Lynch. Yeah. Um, also over 40. <laughs> that's right. And over 6 foot 3. Yep. And she also trusted her sister-in-law, Freddie Child, and she would send these recipes. Top secret, eyes only, not joking. Her OSS training kicked in. Definitely, definitely did. Um, Avis DeVoto was so very, very enthusiastic about this book that she showed parts of it, maybe even the top secret parts, off with her head. (laughs) She showed them to her husband's publisher, Houghton Mifflin, and they sent Julia a contract and a $200 advance. Yay! But here's the thing. They made the contract with Julia. Only Julia. And they they said, well, you three women will have to just work out financial matters between you. I don't want to deal with these different people. And you got to wonder how Simka and Louisa felt about this kind of near total takeover. Their mm-hmm. names were not on this contract. No. Mm. But their names are on the book. True. Um, Simka seemed to be the ideas woman, honestly. Like, if you look at the relationship. I think Simka sent all the recipes. I mean, it is classic French cooking. Mm-hmm. They're not inventing the wheel. Here. Right. I mean, they had a, it's almost like all these stations have a set <laughs> parameter of, right. of songs. There were the rules. There's, that's just it. Right. That's good. But Simka was collecting them from people and looking in books and sending ideas to Julia. Julia was the scientist, like mm-hmm. we talked before. Measurements were different. You know America and the metric system. Right. Um, but even the ingredients were different. American flour is processed differently than French flour, and it acts differently. Cream. Yeah, there's no cream fresh in America mm-hmm. in the 50s. No. And it's an integral part of a lot of French cooking. Right. There's no foie gras. No. You're not going to run down to the A&P. No, we're in France. You get it on every at every market. You can buy or it. Or you have there. a friend that yeah. makes it. Yeah. You know, it's like it used to be with peanut butter back in the day when we had exchange students. Mm-hmm. And then we went to be exchange students uh-huh. for our family. You're always taught to bring a jar of peanut butter because right. that's exotique. And it was. And but- I did. I brought peanut butter and maple syrup because I'm from New England <laughs> when I went. was an exchange student. And they France. always yeah. would bring back Nutella. We had German exchange students. Mm-hmm. They oh, would uh-huh. always bring Nutella. And now you can get Nutella, you know, right. at the Safeway. But then it was like, what is this exotic chocolatini thing? That's delicious. It, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this was before we got all international in our grocery stores. 
she pulled out all the old cookbooks, Escoffier, Coran. She even got out her LaRousse Gastronomique. I almost checked that out from the library just to come over here and drop it on the table. Table, because it's such a lofty tome. It is 10 pounds, and it's mostly an encyclopedia. It's alphabetical order, and a lot of the articles are really small. What is mm-hmm. this technique? What is that technique? And occasionally there'll be a recipe. It's, yeah, it's right. like a textbook. Right. But it's very heavy. And there was that old cookbook that was even out of print in the 50s by someone called Ali Bob, <laughs> which sounds exotic. It sounds really exotic. <laughs> but she'd have all these books open to that recipe, and she would test every variation. And then when That's she came up with it, she'd make it more than once to make sure that it worked and try and think of where someone could stumble in the directions. Mm-hmm. This takes a long time. She made a sport of finding errors in Gourmet Magazine. I'm sure if I, I'm not sure I like this attitude still. It's like those people that love finding grammatical errors, the grammar police. Yes. (laughs) So Paul was transferred to Marseille, another city in France. And so the long distance work continued. But what that gives to historians is now that there's distance, we now have letters going back and forth. Right. So that's great because now we can follow what's happening. Right. It was kind of bad for them, but it was good for us. Yeah, it was bad for them because she had to leave Paris and, you know, she loved Paris. It was very traumatic for her to move to Marseille, which is a whole different way of cooking, a whole different atmosphere. And I think she dove into Marseille like she dove into Paris. She asked fishermen how to make bouillabaisse. Mm-hmm. This goes along with that gourmet magazine. Thing. Yeah. She asked people, how do you make blueberries? That classic French and nearly unspellable soup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Try to write it down yeah, correctly. No. I dare yeah. you. Everyone had very strict and absolutely conflicting things. Right. You must not include tomatoes. If it is not full of tomatoes, it is not proper soup. She's just like, what the heck? You know, never put this fish in. Always put this fish in. Cookbooks were the same. It was completely frustration. She started calling cookbook authors meatballs. They're just meatballs. They don't know anything. And she was so irritated that everyone was so dogmatic. Yeah. Is her word. It's true. What thorough research. So, but she went through that with every single Uh recipe. Paul always cracked up that anytime they sent in a chapter... Everything had been taken apart 20 times. Oh, sure. And that, I think Paul's attitude towards the whole book is just wonderful. I mean, he's very supportive of this project that goes on, quite honestly, for nine full years and is taking up that time of a full-time job for Julia. I mean, okay, he's getting good food out of it. He's also getting, I thought this was very interesting, that you're like, oh, my gosh, they're eating all that stuff that she's cooking. It's so rich and stuff. How did they do it? Because she's like, oh, the French people, they, no, they had stomach disorders. <laughs> and they would have to go on, Paul and Julia would have to go on bland diets for extended periods of time because their stomach, their systems were so messed up by from all this rich food. That's the French paradox. You don't snack. You right. eat at meals. Right. You eat small portions and then you use your body. You could see her in the notes getting obsessed with the way French people are. We must be French. We must be French, she says. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, two of you are French. <laughs> By the way, just so you know. You're not, and you're not that one of those two, yeah. But it was here that old Louis Sec got the heave-ho. Pretty much. Simca and Julia were doing all the work, and Louis defense, they didn't write her about everything. Right. You know, and she had 
children, which they thought, well, now you just don't have time. She had a difficult husband, perhaps. Mm-hmm. They thought, um, Julia said, it is bad for the book to present herself as author. She does not cook, you know, enough. It's not good publicity. So they settled Maybe on a... Maybe it's such a hard number, though. I know. <laughs> well, they settled on a financial split with Simca and Lo- Julia getting 82% of the money. 82%. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, they wanted it to be 90%. Mm-hmm. And Louisette dug her heels in a little. Um, but she got the leftovers of the money. And she's credited as an author alphabetically. Although in the original editions, alphabetically, current, more current ones have Julia Child and Big Fawn at the top and then the other two at the bottom. And so it goes. So they're, they're business of bookery. I should also call it cookery bookery. Cookery bookery. It was her life. So Paul's job kept taking them places. And she got transferred to Germany, which I have to say, and I'm sorry, my people, Julie Child hated to live in Germany. And I think the big problem was she lived in an enclave of Americans. She wasn't allowed to live among the Germans. Right. And she would go out to drink, like, German beer. And the Americans preferred more light brew, where mm-hmm. she would drink the German beer when she could get out to German restaurants and drink it. You know, she she liked doing that, but the, the people she was with and the people she lived around were Americans who barely spoke the language. Yeah, so she didn't really get assimilated. In. The only good thing is she had this horrible electric range that she hated mm. and couldn't work with, but she got experience with it because later when she was doing her TV shows, that's what she, that's had, to what she had to work with. So that's the only good thing that happened out of Germany. That's it. Yeah, there's another really bad thing that happened in Germany. And Paul gets called back to Washington. At first, they think that he's going to get promoted, finally. Although, in Germany, he had a pretty high-up position, but not so. At the time, they are investigating for communist behaviors. It's the McCarthy era. Mm-hmm. And he gets sucked into all of that, and he goes through a very grueling interview process with people asking him questions about things that happened 20 years ago with people that he barely remembers, and, you know, he's trying to bring up facts that, and memories of things that happened forever ago, that, and, and at the same time, hoping that he's not implicating himself or his friends, even though they were perfectly clean, he's like, I didn't do anything wrong, I'm just going to answer their questions honestly, but they're asking questions like, are you a homosexual, and he's kind of flipped with his answer, no, and they're like, drop your pants so we can see, well, what? And, and he's not in a TSA line, so he declined. <laughs> right. What is that going to prove? I, I, I don't know. That whole era is crazy sauce. They were cleared. Ultimately, they, Paul was cleared, but the, they never got that sour taste out of their mouth. Like, wow, mm-hmm. my government that I've been serving can turn on mm-hmm. me that fast. Right, right. You know what? I sound bitter about that book a second ago. So let me go back. And say this. Okay. About Julia. Okay. She was delighted by and interested in everything she saw. Everybody she saw. She made people laugh. Shopkeepers loved to help her. She listened so well. People always love it when people listen. Mm -hmm. Um, She tried to speak their language if she didn't speak it. And people appreciated that. And Paul adored her. And she adored Paul. They were kooky. And... Thanks to her, he would stay at home. They were outy mm-hmm. <laughs> and had a lot of social, you know, interaction. They traveled all over the place. She said of him, I am so damn lucky to know you, much less to be married to you. And I think he felt the same way. They would he do did. this really sweet, they would send out Valentine's cards. 
but they sent out Valentine's cards because they couldn't get their act together at Christmas time <laughs> Which to makes send me out laugh. cards. But they would create these very unique, with his artistic abilities and his graphic design, these really cute Valentine cards that they'd send out to everybody. There's a very famous one that, of them sitting in a bathtub just covered by bubbles. <laughs> like, oh, Ooh, that's saucy. so racy, you know. But it, I think if you had been in the room with them, you would have felt how much they loved and adored each other and how much they supported each other and what they were doing. And I think as a marriage, it's a very good example. And it kind of makes me sad that they didn't get any children to to show that to, to teach that to. But they had other people that, you know, in their lives that saw it, which yeah. is great. Well, to get a feel for her day-to-day life, you know, the meals, the travel, which, I mean, we would love to talk about it, the scenery, you should read or listen to, either's good, mm-hmm. My Life in France. Definitely the softer side of Julia, well worth digging into. We can't go into too too much detail on scenery and specific meals, but right. before you even read a biography. Yeah, I would read, if read you are only going to read one book about Julia Child, that is the one I would suggest you read, because immediately you get her voice in your head. You listened to it on audiobook, and you said that the actress had a very Julia voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I just re- I read it on my Kindle. I borrowed it, from, it was the first time I borrowed a book electronically from my library, and oh. it went swimmingly well. What do you know? Yeah. So, um, but you get her voice in your head, and she didn't actually do the writing. Her grandnephew wrote it with her, and he actually did the writing, and just it actually was published after her death, but. So, just a little redemption for me and my mm-hmm. sour attitude earlier. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a beautiful... It's, <laughs> it's a beautiful life. It's a good book. Yes. Go with that. Yeah. So, okay, so here's a quick update on the book, the big cookbook. So far, they're back in America. She's appalled at the convenience food culture that has sprung up in her absence. Mm-hmm. Particular hatred for Jello. I don't yep. know why she got that mm-hmm. bee in her bonnet specifically. <laughs> Probably because she's been cooking all those bones down for aspic all these years. It's that easy? I just have to boil water? No. <laughs> well, Paul was kind of, um, I don't know, on you know, ha- glass half empty right here when he goes, well, you missed the boat. Everyone just wants easy glop now. And Julia, as a test, fed him in some potatoes one night, and he didn't notice anything. So that's so much for Paul's discerning palate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he was supportive, I yeah. guess, whatever. But, yeah. yeah, she paid him back. He ate potatoes out of a box. So neener, neener. Now, here's the thing that helped Julia a lot. There was a new president in the White House. His name was Mr. Kennedy. And he had a wife named Jackie Kennedy, who had a French chef in the White House. She was a fashion icon. She was a style icon. People wanted to be like Jackie Kennedy. And she had a French chef. That's all I'm saying. That helped a lot. It did help her quite quite a bit. Jackie Kennedy, all the wives that wanted to be Jackie, wanted to learn how to make. Didn't we give a disclaimer on my really bad French? Boof, known. <laughs> so, uh, nine years of stressing out over this book were coming to a close. Julia and Paul inexplicably got sent to Oslo, Norway, so there they are. But from there, they sent off the 750-page manuscript. And the publisher said, what the hell is this? This isn't a, quote, short, simple book designed for the housewife with no servants. What is this? I mean, you obviously put a lot of thought in it, but there's no way we can sell this. Bye-bye. Crushing. But... Enter our friend Avis DeVoto, and who has connections with the publishing industry, having worked in it herself, and she says, no fear, we have something wonderful here. It's going to revolutionize the way Americans cook. Let's send it off to 
other people in. Enter a woman named Judith Jones who works for Alfred Knopf. Um, again, only wanted to deal with Julia. That's so interesting to me. But they gave her a young, enthusiastic editor mm-hmm. that was a foodie, so that's mm-hmm. good. Possible titles. The Witchcraft of French Cooking. Method in Cuisine Madness. Food. France. Fun. How, why, what to cook in the French way. So they finally settled, hurrah, on mastering the art of French cooking, which they did. On, what is that thing board. that you put on the, the poetry magazine? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that actually is, again, the Julia and Julia movie, the Julia Child scenes, how they ha- happened is actually how I would have imagined them happening and that particular scene as well with Judith moving the words around and finally nailing down Mastering the Art of French Cooking. So, finally, Mastering the Art of French Cooking came out, all 734 pages of it, in 1961. Julia was 49 years old. 49 years old! Well, there's not much money for promotions. Other authors may <laughs> may find this even today. Oh, they, yeah. So Simka and Julia went on this promotions tour. Basically, anywhere they had a friend that would put them up, mm-hmm. they would set up an event. <laughs> That's it. I know other authors who have done that. Yeah. Like, who do I know in Dallas? Okay, who do I know in? So she cooked omelets on TV for the first time. She didn't fully understand TV. I don't think. No, it wasn't she, part of her life, really. She never had had one or whatever. Uh, there were 4 million people watching her. She had really no idea there were 4 million people watching her. There was a big picture of the book behind her while she was cooking this omelet, but she was so nervous about her pan wasn't getting hot enough. She was freaking out about the pan, and she never mentioned the book. <laughs> Whoopsie. So she, she got better at promotion. They met James Beard. That famous chef who now, chefs try to get the James Beard Award. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a cookbook writer. Call me Jim, he said. What? <laughs> Call me Jim. <laughs> he promised to put his weight behind the book. It is who you know, people. If a very important member of the U.S. culinary scene loves your book, that's something. So that was a really good meetup, too. Mm-hmm. How random some of these things are. Well, that's um, the way life works. Yeah. So writers really admired the style and the layout. It lists on the left, if you've never seen it, all the ingredients and equipment you'll need for a step. And on the right, it tells you what to do. Mm-hmm. It really set a new standard in cookbooks and kind of made everyone go, oh, my God. Like when Toy Story came out in its 3D, all the animators in the world were like, oh, okay, holy crap. we got to amp up our game mm-hmm. with this animation because Toy Story blew everyone out of the water so badly. They they had to go back to the drawing board and and start over with their projects. Mm -hmm. That's what happened to the cookbook industry. This is, like, so far above. It just set the bar way up. Way high. She received an interview offer from a show called I've Been Reading on WGBH in Boston. You know, there's no money in this. It's all volunteer, mostly. Sure. Sounds like podcasting. A little bit. Julia could not figure out what the heck what the heck am I going to talk about for 30 minutes on this guy's show? She was nervous at being caught, like, awkward. Mm -hmm. So she brought armfuls of, like, there's eggs and a pan and a a hot plate. And if it was going to get boring or she started to feel awkward, she was going to, by God, stand up and make all That's right, with this big balloon whisk that no American cook has ever seen before. (laughs) So that's cool. And so that's what she did. It got a little, you know, it got a little slow, so she made an omelet. She did, and... 27 viewers wrote to the station saying that they would like to see more of her. Yeah, get that lady back to cook. They didn't mention the book. No, no, yeah. just let's cook, cook for us. So her personality that she's always had is showing through 
on just in that one TV show. So the French chef was born in, in concept. The title was chosen because it would fit on one line in a TV guide. Instead of mastering the art of French cooking with Julia Child, it was the French chef, even though she never referred to herself as a chef because she never really worked in a, in restaurant. a professional, like in yeah. a restaurant. So, and she's not French. And she's not French. People called her on that later, by the way. Yes. But, but at that point, she was so established that it's... Yeah, they're like, whatever. Yeah, that's right. So WGBH scraped together some sponsors to buy tape. That was the problem, to get tape Mm -hmm. to do three episodes of The French Chef. You know what? They're all gone because guess what they did? They taped over it. Tape is is not cheap and you got to reuse it. Yeah. They taped over a piece of American history. I know they did, but they didn't know it was American history at the time. (laughs) But you can see most of the other 116. In fact, we got one of the earlier ones Mm -hmm. out of the library on DVD. And what did you get? Well, let's talk about what happened in this one show. It was the potato show. Oh, okay. Is the one. I tried to watch it with my seven-year-old, and she started to talk, and my seven-year-old looked at me, and he said, has she been drinking alcohol? (laughs) Okay, A, I have too worldly of a child. (laughs) And B, no, although that was a very common little misconception that she was gurgling wine right out of a bottle. Yeah. She never did it. The show was shot live on tape, which means there was not going to be any editing. Yeah. Which means that she had to get exactly 27 minutes of airtime. And at the beginning shows, they didn't hadn't figured out the cue card system. What did she call them? Idiot cards. They had to do it in one take. If she flubbed, if she was going too fast or too slow. 27 minutes of Julia cooking. Well, okay, several things happened in this show that kind of made me laugh. She put garlic in. And it totally, she goes, oh, that went all over the stove. Well, some probably got in the potatoes, too. (laughs) And she sets the timer all awkward. Like, she starts and she goes, oh, oh, hold on. I got to go set the timer. And then, now, where did I put that? Where did I put? She's always looking for stuff, which is cracking me up. She has the same mashed potato fork my mom had. I wonder if my mom bought it based on... Julia Childs. It really was the same mixing fork. Okay, so I saw the famous mess up episode that spawned a myth. Accidentally, I started with this one. So she's got a potato cake in the pan, and she's decided she's going to flip it. You've got to have the courage of your convictions if you're going to do something like this. And she (laughs) flipped it, and like half of it went on the stove and on the table. And she goes, well, that didn't go very well. (laughs) And then she picked up the rest of the potatoes and stuffed them in and kind of like... Patted him back together, and she's like, who's going to see? You're alone in the kitchen. So that turned into a myth that she dropped the fish on the floor and that she dropped the chicken and and put it back. Yeah, no. Uh, And she literally, in the middle, goes, too many burgers on. I'm hot. I'm baking. And she wiped her face all over unabashedly with this (laughs) napkin. Twice during this show. You never see Rachel Ray do that, do you? Or Yeah, no. Yeah, you might see Emerald daubing his forehead with a little elbow. People complained sometimes that she was kind of dirty. She never washed her hands or whatever else. But you know what? There's no studio audience eating this. No. So whatever. It doesn't matter. But she had very good practical advice. Here's how you cut potatoes. This is variations. You can make this with milk and cream. You can do cheese and tomatoes. This is your basic. And right. then here's all these variations. She would also do something that they pioneered in mastering the art of French cooking was... Do this part ahead of time and stop 
Put it away. Then, when you're ready to go again, pull it back out and restart. Unprecedented. Right. I can see why people would really love this. She did say tomato. She drank rosé wine. Gasp. Which is coming back. But she drank it out of a bottle, not a box like me. She drank it out of a glass, <laughs> not a bottle. Or a box. Oh, yeah, she poured it out of the bottle. <laughs> and it's funny because during that episode, the potato episode, you can see at the end she has finished too soon. And mm-hmm. someone off camera has told her to vamp. Yeah. So it's like begins the tap dancing. But through the whole thing, with her, her crazy mannerisms, and we're used to the Food Network slickness now. Right. This is pioneering right. stuff. I still found it very endearing, and I felt comfortable. I don't know if I took it to the extent of making the potatoes, <laughs> but it's kind of nice to know, like, you know what? It's not a big deal. Did it half of it fall? We'll put it in the oven instead. Who cares? Right. You fix it. you got to get your mistake, and you move on. And you know, yeah. And you, you don't apologize. You don't apologize. I love that. That is my favorite lesson from, you do not apologize for, you don't say, I think the sauce is a little salty. You just serve it. It is what it is. Love that. And if your cake doesn't come out of the pan, you make a compote. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a solution. You just have to think. That's my takeaway from Julia Child. And I grew up on her. My mom got the book of the month club. Julia Child's first episode aired. 10 days after I was born. How about that? Well, I watched a lot of Food Network on my maternity <laughs> leave. So maybe your mom did the same thing. So, um, you know, I grew, I really grew up. My mother gave me the joy of cooking and mastering the art of French cooking as a, uh, when I was learning to cook as a pretty young kid. We were cooking dinners by nine. Crazy. But that's where I learned to cook. She said, if you can read, you can cook. Good. I know, mom. Wise. <laughs> the reviews were very, very good. Cities mm-hmm. added all over the country. She became quite the celebrity, though people have often said someone who looked and sounded like Julia would never make it today in TV. They called her a dowager countess doing a burlesque act. That's funny. I can kind of see I, yeah. where they were coming from. But, you know, she became a national institution. There's no one like her. No. And when you're unique and you're eccentric, but you have a good message, I think that's all you need. Yep. They took this money they made here, and they built a little stone house in Provence, which sounds ideal, called La Pichoune, that they called Peach, of La course. Peach. They always did. It's on Simca's land, and they promptly started wearing a path in between their houses, because they are going to work on what they called Son of Mastering. Right. <laughs> so the book, the second book. Right. Fierce battles, you know, great creativity, but the strained friendship resulted from this book. The husbands, frankly, were done with both of them. Mm-hmm. Paul didn't like Simka anymore. Mm-hmm. Simka's husband was done with Julia. Who's to say who was in whose face? But, <laughs> but you know, they got on each other's nerves quite a lot during this time period. Well, I that happens. I mean, they're, they've been working together for a long time. They saw each other quite a bit. So Julia, though, really kept from Simka how popular the show really was. She really never let Simka know. And so Simka was really bewildered when people would come to La Peach, which is, after all, you can see it from her house. Mm-hmm. And they would want to take pictures of Julia cooking and take pictures of Julia doing stuff. And they didn't want Simka. And they really, frankly, didn't know too much about who Simka even was. Julia included her purposely, invited her to come over and be in the photos and Mm -hmm. this and that, but Simka was always very confused as to why why this is happening. Simka was probably hearing stories from Julia like, well, Paul and I go out and we shop and we buy the ingredients and then we just go into our little TV studio and... She played it down a Yeah, I'm sure. Well, she said, in fact, to Simka, oh, the show's getting some kind of an award. 
It was an Emmy. Emmy. <laughs> she is the first TV educational personality to win an Emmy. She was on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, Everyone's in the kitchen, it said. Yep. In 1966, she was 54 years old, and she's on the cover of Time magazine. Big deal. So that's kind of tough for old Simka. Yeah. For Simka, it's a foreign concept that such a personality can arise. The media frenzy was pretty unprecedented. She filmed a special from the White House. McCall's was covering her, the New Yorker, the BBC, all major papers. She was an icon, and she was just busy, 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 all the time busy. The second series of The French Chef was in color, and that's where I came in. Is that what, yeah? Uh, early 70s, 70s. That's where I came in. But the part I remember is not anything to do with the kitchen. The part I remember is the little field stories they would do where she would go to a baker mm-hmm. and bake with him and learn how it's done and tell us. Or she'd go to a butcher shop or charcuterie. She would do these little color places or right. go to the market. That's what I remember about her. And I think it was called The French Chef in France. Which is makes it more travel and cooking. And I think that's kind of what I liked about it. Two separate networks. She could have been on both. Crazy. <laughs> but she kept doing demonstrations, and she gave all the money from demonstrations to WGBH, Season which is nine. now one of the top public radio stations in the country. I mean, it, WGBH does a lot. Mm-hmm. And I just think Julia was the saving grace of that thing. She made that network. She made the food network. When you say GB, WGBH, we all see the little image in our head of, yeah, their, yeah. of their logo. Yeah. Well, let's just quickly, uh, you know, we can talk about this all day, but four more books, six more TV shows, three of which were actually filmed in her actual kitchen mm-hmm. in America. She joined and created culinary associations, so she was extremely busy. But Paul, who in fact was 10 years older than she, was really falling apart. He was, old age was hitting him hard, and he was having a series of strokes that really just made him a, a shadow of the man that he used to be. When they moved to Cambridge, not all that long ago, he had redone and redesigned their kitchen for her to make it as the perfect kitchen for her because he knew that she had followed him all over Europe and did for him. So he was going to do for her. He raised her counters up so that she didn't have to bend over when she was cooking. Finally. He put, he, (laughs) she liked her pans hanging. So he hung them on the walls and drew little outlines of them so that she, that's where they went. Her knives, he put a magnet board up so she could just stick her knives to it. And they, there they would be. It's a beautiful kitchen. It's very functional. Yeah. It was definitely a labor of love. Mm -hmm. His, his really last big gift to her, I think, was that kitchen. So Paul lived long enough to see her receive her honorary degree from Harvard. Awesome. You know, back when she was going to school, women couldn't go to Harvard. But when Julia was 82, Paul, her companion and her cheerleader, died. It wasn't so much sudden. Uh, She received the news right after a taping of the French chef. Yeah, he was in a nursing home at the time, and and his health was really failing. But still, what a blow. Yeah, it was a profound loss. For a while, she filled her house with young people, uh, you know, crew members, mm-hmm. and kept busy, pretty busy. But yeah. ultimately, she just, she let go of La Peach. It had too many memories, I think. Yeah. She donated her house to her college. Yes, she did. Um, she spent ten more years working hard. She really <laughs> admired Martha Stewart. I know. There's an episode, um, I think it's, uh, oh, I want to say it's, Julie Child, Master Chefs, 
with Martha Stewart and they're just fangirly with each other. It's super cute. And Martha is showing how to make this frosting, this butter, special buttercream frosting. And it's one of the first things that Julia learned how to make it look hard on blue, but she's watching with this rapt attention like she'd never seen it before. I love that about her. She's always looked like she was learning from the person that, that she was cooking with. And she never stole the spotlight. Mm-mm. I mean, she could have easily said dismissively, well, I, you know, that was from the 40s. What, if, you know, she gave Martha Stewart the respect on her own show. And asked questions, even yeah. though she knew the answers to them. Because she knew the viewers might be thinking the same thing. Yeah, I, I always admired that. Yeah, and Julia looked at Martha and said, aren't we amazing? <laughs> Think about how recent that is. It's- Not that long ago. At 91, in 2004, in fact, Julia Child died in her sleep of kidney failure, and the world lost an icon. She, in her whole career, she contributed to 20 cookbooks, and uh, books, cookbooks and other books. She had 13 television shows on over the course of her career. And remember, her television career didn't start until she was 50. As a woman of a certain age, it's so inspiring to see someone who did it at a time when, you know, she bucked tradition her whole life. And I think, I think that's pretty, that's inspiring. She rejected all her whole life characterizations that she was a feminist. Mm-hmm. She said, oh, I'm too, I'm of a different generation than that. But really, the way she acted was she had a dream, she acted upon it. And that will take you if you stay in her way. Right. And that's really the definition of feminism, I think. Yes, I agree. It's it's not anti-men. Julia loved men. Yes. She liked them a lot. I totally agree. She was a model for a lot of people. Well, um, let's take the tiniest of little breaks. And when we come back, we will give you some links, some videos, some books that you can follow up on this amazing woman. are back. So where can you find things about Julia Child? Well, right now you're going to trip all over them because August 15th celebrated what would have been her 100th birthday. And the interwebs and your media are full of stories about Julia Child these days. But we found some that are we liked, and so I'll tell you a little bit about that. Starting off, there's a 1999 interview. It is three hours long, and the interviewer is a little, he's off camera. He's not a professional um, on-air talent, but he asks the right questions, and it's Julia talking for three hours, and it's pretty fascinating. I thought it was really interesting, very informative. It's with... The Archive for American Television. You can find it online. And they're not going to tape over that one. No, I don't believe they will at all. No, no, no. There was a PBS American Masters done on her. As far as other interviews go, there's one in on copingmag.com, which is an interview with her about breast cancer survival. She had a radical mastectomy in 1965. And uh, really never let it slow her down. You could practically just not notice it from the outside, which Mm -hmm. is astonishing to me um, for such a public figure. But that interview talks about her strategies for coping and her 
experience with breast cancer, so that's a good one to hit. It sure is. Um, the Julia Child Foundation, which is an organization that she founded during her lifetime, it's a grant-giving organization. The full title is actually the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. And it's designed to give grants to people interested in doing what Julia did. They they do have a whole full page on the tight copyright rules that, that, that they have. Julia was very strict about who she would lend her image to, her recipes. Um, she didn't give them out frivolously. She had to totally endorse the product or the organization before she would. And they're, they're fulfilling her wishes to this day, which is pretty cool. They do have an interesting, for kids, this was really interesting, a timeline of her life in pictures, which is, there's some pictures that I hadn't seen in anything else that we looked at, so that was that's pretty fun to look at. And, of course, we will link you to that. Also, because it is the 100th, what would have been the 100th birthday of Julie Child this year, there is a web-wide project. It's called JC100, and since May... For 100 days, this group of food bloggers and food writers have been given Julia Child recipes, and they all have been blogging about creating that recipe and what happened, and they're all linked through this JC100. There's a website. There's a Twitter page, and you can link to all. It's very interesting because you just take one dish like Cocovin, and all these bloggers have, have, have made it and it's their pictures and how it worked for them and memories that they had and how it turned out. It's just very, very interesting. We will link you to that through PBS.org. We were going to link you that way because they are the masterminds behind it. Although Alfred Knopf is the <laughs> official organizer of it, but you don't need to know that. We'll just link you. There is a classic parody of Julia Child that if you haven't seen, you must see. It's available on YouTube, and it is Dan Aykroyd looking surprisingly like Julia Child, accidentally cutting his thumb off, and blood ensues, and as Julia is known for rolling with the punches, she tries to cook while blood is (laughs) spurting out of her hand. And um, one of the most famous lines is, Why are you all spinning around? Bon appetit! As he collapses, it's pretty funny. It is funny. And I watched that with my seven-year-old, and he's like, is that blood all over the place? He just thought it was the coolest thing ever. Well, and Julia Child herself has been known to show that one enthusiastically, so she even thought that was hilarious. (laughs) Um, Also, in 2002, a food blogger named Julie Powell started a project called the Julie Julia Project, and she was going to cook every single last recipe in Mastering the Art of French Cooking in a year and blog about it. Which she did. That turned into a book, which turned into a movie, and this is one of the rare occasions, brace yourselves, I hope you're sitting down, that I like the movie better than I like the book. And why is that? Because the director, the late, great Nora Ephron... Moment of silence. Okay. Um, took pieces from Julia Child's My Life in France, we've talked about how much we like that book, and enlivened them in contrast to the way Julie was living. Mm-hmm. And the contrast and the similarities are quite amazing. And it, it's got Meryl Streep in it and Stanley Tucci. We we can't lose. No, you can't. And that's the, the visually, the French... The French scenes are just, those are my favorite parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I can relate 
to the struggles of Julie Powell, but I appreciate watching the struggles of Julia Child better. <laughs> and we do not, in fact, want to tell you the ending and if they ever met, because I think that's an integral part of the book, so we're not going to spoil that. But at the very, very end, there's like five endings to this book, by the way. So at the very, very end, they make a pilgrimage, Julie Powell and her husband, to the National Museum of History, where they found Julia's kitchen. Right. Julia's actual kitchen from her Cambridge home, the one that Paul designed for her, was taken out of her home when she moved out and um, and brought to the Smithsonian. And you can... If you aren't in Washington to see it, you can actually see it online, and we will link you to this, but you should click the link because you see the entire exhibit, and then there's little markers on it that you click to, and you can see specific items that were in her kitchen, including two copies of The Joy of Cooking, all beaten up, and it's just, it's very interesting. There's There's pages of it. I strongly recommend the kids would love to see that, I think. And then you can go make chocolate mousse. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's a, you know, that's a book to read or a movie to see. Now, as to books, my goodness, you should see this stack of books we've got. I know we do. Obviously, Mastering the Art of French Cooking and Son of Mastering, which is not really called that. It's called Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 2. You'll notice Louisette's name is missing because they cut her out of that deal completely. Those books are worthy of seeing. I have to tell you, if I'd been a housewife when this came out, I would have been intimidated and I would not have proceeded. There is a cookbook she wrote that is more my style. It's written much later. It's much more informal and includes (laughs) an expose on the exotic avocado (laughs) and that kind of thing, which is a a cultural, interesting, historical timeline in itself when things become exotic or not exotic. It's from 1989. It is color photos, little stories. It includes more than just French cooking. It's called The Way to Cook. So people like me who aren't going to jump into mastering, and it's a fact that I'm not going to be that girl, (laughs) would maybe do well to start with the lighter version. I, however, was raised on mastering the art of French cooking, although I have since departed from that particular method of cooking. I am a 30-minute cook. If it can't get from the refrigerator to the table in 30 minutes, I I don't do it. Except for this week. Except for this past week, where I was so inspired by all Julia that I decided to treat my family to a French chef dinner. And I will tell you, there's a good reason why I do not cook the French chef way anymore. I don't have the time. And I decided to do it like Julia. I mark it that day, which is ridiculous because the meat was just as fresh the day before. Uh, and I would just take her enthusiasm for cooking and bring it into the kitchen, which I did for about four hours. The second four hours, however, <laughs> were complete drudgery, and I took a shortcut after shortcut. But ultimately, I served my family coco vin. I did mash the potatoes instead of boil them with parsley because I knew my people wouldn't eat them. So <laughs> we had mashed red potatoes, which I had to peel, which took quite some time because they're little. Anyway, fresh green beans instead of frozen. I bought the green beans and washed and snapped and steamed them a la Julia. And a almost entirely from scratch, with the exception of the crust, because it was 108 degrees that day and I wasn't about to be messing with pie crust. Um, A pear and almond custard tart for dessert. It went over well with my family, but by the time we sat down, 
it was our typical 20 minute dinner and done. We, we didn't leisurely sit over it. And, uh, but I will put as a special feature pictures of my own little, it, yeah, it's a little mommy bloggy, but whatever. I'm going to do that on, on our website for, um, that particular day, my French chef dinner day. <laughs> Very impressed at your dedication. Yeah. By the end of the day, I was swearing in English. I can tell you that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Julia Child was a swearer. Did we yeah. say that before? You know what her favorite word was? Cover your ears if you're, you know, of a tender constitution. Balls, she would say. I was saying far worse words than balls. <laughs> I'm just like, well, but for yeah. the 50s yeah. or 40s, I, that, was, that was something else. Oh, yeah. Race so that was her favorite. Racing. She didn't approve of four-letter words, though. No. And that was one of the thick criticisms she had with um, Julie Powell. Anyway, uh, books. Right. There are a couple other books, adult books. As always, Julia, which are the letters of Julia Child and Avis DeVoto, which I thought was really fun to read. It's fun to read simultaneously to a biography because it'll say, in the biography, it'll say, she blah, 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 blah. And then you look in her letter to Avis and she's like, those meatballs. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, we call him Woodenhead because he just says he has a new boss at his new embassy. And then Julia will call him a name. Yeah, right, right. It's really funny it, to read them simultaneously. It is fun. Do you have a good um, biography? I do. I do. Uh, Appetite for Life, Julia Child by Noel Fitch. There is a brand new, highly vaunted mm-hmm. biography coming out by a man named Bob Spitz, famous for his biography of the Beatles. It is coming out on August 7th, which is very soon to when this is going out. You may be able to run out right now before people hear of it and get it from your library. Most libraries, I know mine has it on order. I have it on hold. So good luck to you people. <laughs> um, so it's coming out, and it's really, really highly anticipated so I'm looking forward to that. He wrote another book that I do recommend yes. called The Saucier's Apprentice. Not sorcerer, but saucier, as in one that makes sauces. It's his journey into how he became interested in food. Mm-hmm. My Life in France by Julia Child, Incomparable, and Alex Prudhomme, her great nephew. There is a littler biography in the Penguin Live series by Laura Shapiro. Um, it's little. It's less complete. It's more chatty. So that's good. It's, it is. It's a good biography. It's significantly smaller by half than um, any other biography. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. As far as kid books go, there are two that I just thought were so charming. I read them several times to my seven-year-old. One is called Bon Appetit, The Delicious Life of Julia Child by Jessie Hartland. And it actually has her life. It's written out for kids in Really charming illustrations. Okay, the illustrations are so cute. Like, little details in here about her life. There's an illustration of her apartment. Charming. It's very cute, and the font is a little handwriting font. It's so cute. And the other one I really liked is Minette's Feast. Minette was their cat in Paris. She remained in Paris, and they moved to Marseille with an elderly woman. But this is by Susanna Reich and illustrated by Amy Bates. And it's the story of Julia Child cooking, learning to cook in Paris and falling in love with Paris. And there's one illustration of her in Paul. It was exactly how I imagined it, cozied over a piece of bread. And it's just, again, charming, very charming. Kids will really like it. And you can throw in your bad French when you read it to them, like <laughs> I did to my children. And if somebody wants to be a super geek, 
I mean, super geek. I've been watching this for years, so what does that say about me? There is a webcam in a bakery in Paris called Boulangerie Bonneau, and I have been watching them make French bread on this webcam for years. You, too, can watch them. You can watch the cat lay on the breadboard. You can watch the man. I know. It's funny because they... There were a couple nights of cat on breadboard, and then obviously nerds like myself had gotten a hold of it and sent them a note because the next day there was, like, a stack of baskets there uh-huh. as if to keep the cat away. So maybe the webcam's not so good for the secret life of a bakery. But, um, but yeah, you can watch it, and we'll link you up to that webcam. It's free. Like Susan said, this is your time. If you want to learn anything about Julia Child, that 100th birthday celebration going on all over the Internet, I would not be surprised if your library had an event going on. Mm -mm. Check that out, too. Let me just leave you with a quote from Julia about how she saw her life. Humble to the last. I don't think about whether people will remember me or not. I've been an okay person. I've learned a lot. I've taught people a thing or two. That's what's important. Julia Child, happy birthday. Bon appétit. Bye. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. I'm making chocolate strawberries. I've covered them with rice. They're nice. I made some apple turnovers. I've drizzled them with sauce. Can't keep them in sight Despite all my cooking for them They say my drive's commendable But my delivery's insane Way to rain on my parade They say my avocation's gone too far I could never be a chef Am I bereft of my senses? I'll try my hand at needlepoint Oh no, I'll blow things up It's just my luck, so duck.